podcast one production. G'day, I'm Chris Russell and welcome to Agriminders and to part two of our episode, which I've called Animal Farm, where we're exploring the realistic comfort needs and the rights of animals that are in our care for agricultural production. If you like the principles and provenance of animal productivity, or the three Ps as we've been calling them. We've heard from Mikio in part one that his research has set out the importance of animal husbandry and live animal exports in particular to Australian agriculture. He suggested that urban perceptions of animal sentience or their ability to feel emotions of feelings were often based on a projection of human needs into the animal world and experience with their pets, whereas those pets have been conditioned to the soft urban dwelling life inside houses. The RSPCA is clearly a specialised body, focusing entirely on animal welfare, but in a more realistic manner than many of the animal rights bodies who don't even acknowledge a need for animal production within agriculture. Therefore, our next agriminder is Dr Jed Goodfellow, who is probably the most qualified and one of the very few specialist animal rights lawyers in Australia, and is now Senior Policy Officer with the RSPCA. Welcome to Agriminders, Jed. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me on the show. So, Jed, if we take it as a given that animal welfare is something that is almost unarguable, no one, I think, would ever want to see, even uh, the most strident, pragmatic farmer I've ever met, would want to see the sort of conditions that we saw on some of the television programs and we've heard about in terms of transporting live animals overseas. Jed, as far as public perception is concerned, we know that reality and perception are often poles apart, especially when relying uh, on the media for our stories. Now, the perception at the moment of of live animals is basically it's a cruel, uh, undeniably poor way of doing business in terms of animal husbandry. But if you actually look at the reality, a huge percentage of animal of animals, both cattle and sheep that go out of Australia, you know, are either sent out at a time of the year or in a way that is relatively comfortable, they're well fed, um, and in fact arrive at their destination in reasonable nick. So how close is the perception to the reality in your view? Well, look, I, I think the perception is quite close to the reality because you've got to remember the, the I mean, the images that have been in the uh, news recently relating to live sheep exports. Um, I mean, those uh, voyages uh, were conducted in accordance with Australian government regulations. There were well, no, no they, I mean, they were, they've been de-licensed because they weren't in accordance with it, surely. But, but prior to departing, everything was in accordance with Australian government regulations. So the stocking densities were ticked off by the Department of Agriculture um, and, and every, everything else around those voyages was, was approved by the Department of Agriculture. Their, their initial investigation into that mortality incident found that there were no breaches of Australian government regulations. So when you look at the stocking densities in the Australian standards for the export of livestock, we're talking about stacking uh, basically three sheep, uh, around a 50 kilo sheep uh, per square metre. They get uh, around 0.35 square metres per sheep in terms of floor space during those voyages. Um, and that might not look particularly bad for you know sheep that are held in a feedlot or a sale yard, for instance, but we've got to remember they're on those live export 
voyages for three, sometimes four weeks at those uh, stocking density levels. So they, they can't lay down at the same time. Um, and in order just to get to food and water, they've, they've really got to be quite assertive and push through other, other sheep in order to get there. And, and the shy sheep, um, the, the, the more submissive ones, will often uh, simply not eat and, and perish on board the, the, uh, the vessel. So, you know, the, while certainly the media focuses on the worst aspects of the live export trade, unfortunately, um, the routine voyages as well have quite significant animal welfare issues. So just because an animal arrives uh, alive in the foreign market doesn't necessarily mean it's had a good voyage. And we can't base animal welfare indicators on mortality, mortality levels. That's really why we're in the current predicament that we're in right now with live sheep exports is because the industry has been basing their animal welfare performance simply on looking at how many animals died during the voyage. And that's simply not a scientific um, scientifically robust measure of animal welfare. Do they, these ships all have vets on them these days? Uh, for the long-haul voyages, so that's over 10 days, uh, the exporter is required to have a veterinarian on board, and that veterinarian, unfortunately, is is employed by the exporter, even though that they have uh, public reporting responsibilities. So there is a conflict there between uh, kind of having to wear two hats, if you like, um, both being an employee of the exporter while still reporting to the Australian government on matters that may actually uh, not be in the interest of the exporter. So we're going to be seeing reforms coming out to try to um, ameliorate that conflict, if you like, uh, with the onboard veterinarian. So, and does the vet have an obligation to euthanise sheep that are, in his view, um, in, in conditions that would be unacceptable from an animal welfare point of view? Uh, yes, they do. So, but, um, so these, a lot of these mortalities may well be sheep that are euthanised rather than dying of the actual stress. Yeah, so so my understanding is that the euthanasias are also included in the overall mortality um, score. So they don't distinguish between a sheep that has just perished and a sheep that has been uh, euthanised. Um, but, it, but again, I mean, even if, you know, you have a low mortality rate, uh, it doesn't mean that the animals have not suffered during that voyage uh, because you, you may very well be looking at very high temperatures um, and, uh, and a significant proportion of the consignment suffering from heat stress. And that's what we're, we're going to be seeing reforms in that area to ensure that uh, the heat stress risk assessment model that the industry has been using and the, and the uh, government department has been using to determine the risk of certain voyages will be changing from one that's purely based on uh, a risk of mortality to one based on a risk of, of the animals suffering heat stress. So that's a, a big improvement, but what it means is that it's going to result in stocking densities that are so low that uh, the industry won't be viable, particularly for that northern summer period between May to October. So it's going to be really interesting to see you know, where the economic cards fall once these reforms are in place. But, but I hear all that, and, and I'm accepting that from the point of view of the animals that survive it, but it's also would be reasonable to say that, that animals that are under severe um, stress or have been damaged or, you know, are lying on the ground like the sort of animals we saw in the footage should be euthanised long before they get to that stage on a properly run operation and the vet doing his job. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that's a good thing. So the, the mortalities, okay, that's a big loss for the shipping company and for the people who own the sheep, but, but it also means, though, that animals are being put down before they actually reach the stage of, of being in that sort of lift significant stress. Yeah, I, I mean, that's obviously better than, 
you know, suffering for a prolonged period, of course, but I, I still wouldn't describe it as a, as a good outcome, of course. If there's a necessity to, to euthanize the animal, then, of course, the animal's already in a pretty poor state and, and has suffered uh, considerably but prior to that euthanasia. Uh, but the other thing to remember as well is that when they hit these heat stress events, uh, there is no possible way that you're going to be able to get around to 1,000, 2,000 sheep that are suffering heat stress in a severe way at, to euthanize them all, particularly when you're looking at you know, one vet and a number of uh, stock stock hands on board, uh, it's simply not possible to get around to that many animals. These vessels will have, you know, 60, 70,000 animals on board um, and they have a handful of people to attend to them. So uh, giving individual care to, to, to these animals on board is simply uh, not feasible. It's not possible. So my question to you is, though, it is a significant business and it's not a replaceable business that you can just say, well, everyone will just buy the meat if we won't sell them the animals, because that's that's not the case. It's a $19 billion business globally that is going to carry on whether Australia's in it or not. So my question to you is, how do we balance the very reasonable animal welfare requirements that should be associated with all animal husbandry with the need for a live animal business as a business for Australian farmers? Yeah, look, I think the first thing to note, Chris, when, when you're talking about the live animal export trade, obviously you've got uh, different components to that trade. We've got a significant uh, live sheep trade predominantly out of Western Australia to the Middle East. And then we've also got a significant live cattle trade out of the north of Australia to mainly Southeast Asian countries. And those trades give rise to different animal welfare issues. And when you're talking about um, trying to balance acceptable animal welfare standards with um, the the interests of the companies involved to, to actually make a buck out of the trade, so the commercial uh, aspects of the trade, we do find that there are some irreconcilable conflicts between animal welfare and the, the productivity and profitability of the live export trade. And if you look at uh, the live sheep trade to the Middle East, of course, when it comes to determining stocking densities on board the vessels, that is where really the rubber hits the road when you're talking about that balance between animal welfare and also the exporter actually making a profit from the shipment. Um, and from the RSPCA's perspective, we can't see how we could be exporting sheep, particularly during the Middle East and summer period, that's the May to October period, when temperatures are routinely around 40 to 50 degrees in temperature, um, in a way that's going to actually ensure that those animals don't suffer from heat stress. Um, the Australian Veterinary Association has put in a, a submission to the Australian government saying uh, very definitively that exports during that period, that time of year, need to be stopped because there is no way to mitigate against those heat stress risks. So when it comes to areas like that where animal welfare and, uh, and, and the industry's uh, sort of economic interests seem to be fundamentally incompatible, that's where, as an animal welfare organisation, we say that this trade simply cannot continue because we can't do it in a way that's going to meet those basic animal welfare standards. So, Jed, I hear that. But on the other hand, I tried to Google what the standards and expectations were for animals shipped out of, for example, Argentina or Brazil or um, South America or other, other countries like that. And I can't even find a set of standards that have been written for those countries. So surely if we stop allowing them to ship 
uh, live sheep, for example, out of Western Australia into the Middle East. Those ships will then immediately start sourcing their sheep elsewhere in the world. And in that case, they don't even have controls on abattoir standards. Now, at least in our case, um, you know, we do have an approval process for any abattoirs where these animals are being slaughtered. The animals that come out of South America have absolutely no controls as far as I can see. So aren't we better to have some uh, mitigating factors than than having none at all? Yeah, look, the, the problem with that approach, Chris, is, is really that that would essentially be basing our standards upon what other nations are doing. Um, we've really got to focus on what we're doing. And if we can't do it in a way that meets acceptable animal welfare standards, then we can't really justify it simply on the basis that if we don't do it, someone else is going to do it and they're going to do it even worse than us. That, that's sort of like taking the logic that two wrongs make a right, if you like. Um, I'm not trying to be you know, uh, uh, tricky with, with the argument here, but if we were to take that logic, we could go down a, a very dangerous path in justifying all manner of practices because we might do it better than another nation. And the other thing I'd say about that is there is quite a lot of uh, international uh, campaigning and awareness raising going on right now in South America, in the, the Middle East, in uh, Eastern Europe, in order to, to raise awareness about the animal welfare issues associated with live animal exports. And uh, we also see international organisations coming into the, into the debate um, and they're taking a lot more notice. So I think we will see some international standards being developed in the future that are going to apply to all countries that are going to be trading in livestock overseas. So will that incorporate those countries also adopting similar lower densities on the ships to what we're talking about in Australia now? Well, that that would be the, the objective, is to ensure that any international standards are going to be meeting basic animal welfare requirements, at least to implement animal welfare requirements. Because as you say, and we, we certainly acknowledge, other nations that engage in the live animal export trade won't have uh, great animal welfare standards, and we certainly acknowledge that. But, but again, that is not a justification for Australia continuing to export live animals if we can't do it to acceptable welfare standards as well. And when it comes to the live sheep trade to the Middle East, um, the evidence shows that it simply can't be done in a way that is humane. So in Western Australia, I'm aware of some farmers over there who tell me that there is just no other alternative way of selling the animals that are used in that live export business. Uh, Sheep I'm talking about now, we'll come to cattle in a minute. And on that basis, um, it is worth our while, surely, pursuing a way of encompassing those lower densities. Now, I notice that at the moment, the major shipper out of Australia has indicated that it's just not going to be profitable at the sort of densities we're talking about for him to ship. But that is compared to what he's going to make out of shipping them out of countries where there is no requirement. But given that, that, let's assume for a moment that those other countries eventually adopt the same standards, would it not be worthwhile then for, in some way, the, the shipments out of Australia to be subsidised in the interim period until all of those countries adopt the same standards rather than throw the whole trade out? Because I would think once it's thrown out, it's going to be very hard for those Australian farmers to get the business back again. Well, look, there's no question that transitioning away from the live animal export trade, particularly when we're talking about sheep from WA, it will take time. It will take time to to make those adjustments uh, and to increase those markets for Australian boxed lamb and mutton products. Uh, But it's certainly not impossible. And the, the sort of 
legislation that's being talked about at the moment is looking at a five-year transition period where producers who are currently selling into the live trade would be assisted in tapering off their reliance on the trade um, over time. So we would be looking at a, a, a sort of a, a mid-term strategy for, for moving away from the live trade. We certainly can't just switch it off overnight and no one really uh, who's involved in the policy debate is really uh, arguing for that. Everyone acknowledges that it will take time to transition away, but it certainly can happen. And we've seen other nations like New Zealand uh, who have implemented effective prohibitions on the live animal export trade as well cope quite well with that transition period. But the, the, you're talking about the boxed or chilled or, or frozen meat trade. I mean, they're at the countries that currently buy the sheep from us for, through live animals are just now set up for that. They either don't have refrigeration, they operate with wet markets mostly, they have religious reasons for not being able to accept animals or meat that's already been slaughtered. There are all sorts of reasons why live, live animal exports will always be part of the global trade. I, I'm just persisting with this thought that if it's a matter of getting everyone to adopt the standards, is there some way we can hang on to that business in the interim period until actually that global adoption happens. Yeah, Chris, I mean, if there was a way to do it in a humane way, uh, meeting basic animal welfare standards, acceptable welfare standards, then certainly as an animal welfare organisation, the RSPCA wouldn't be opposed to it at all. Um, that, but the fact of the matter, the balance of the evidence shows us uh, that it is simply not possible to do it in a way that uh, reduces risks to acceptable levels and also meets those animal welfare requirements. The, and at a price that the shippers are prepared to accept in terms of stocking density. Yeah, exactly. So, so but if, that, that, if that goes out of the equation, it may be possible. Well, if if you know if you're talking about shipping sheep in 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 sort of a uh, in a way that's going to actually meet their welfare requirements, I mean, I would I would imagine um, I don't know if there's been any economic modelling done on that, but uh, you would be talking about uh, huge prices for um, the export trade to be able to remain viable. So, I mean, you know, if the Middle Eastern importers would like to to pay, you know, significantly more for for Australian produce and uh, it was shown to be possible to do it to acceptable welfare standards, then again, as an animal welfare organisation, we would not be opposed to it. We've also got to consider in that dynamic complex environment as well uh, the, the treatment of the animals in the foreign market as well. And of course, sheep that are sent to the Middle East, uh, they're not stunned prior to slaughter um, and there are a whole range of handling and husbandry practices that do give us cause for concern in relation to the welfare standards in the markets that we're sending our live animals to. So it's not just the welfare conditions on the vessels, it's also the welfare conditions in the importing countries as well. And there's a long way to go in, in that area uh, before we could give any kind of tick of approval to the, to the trade but we have come a long way in that area. In particular, if, I, if we now move to live cattle exports, which mainly are, are out of Broome and out of Darwin, I think, and also maybe out of North Queensland, but we've moved in Indonesia, which is our biggest market, from I think something less than 20% uh, stunning occurring before slaughter to around 95% now by requiring abattoirs to be registered, and that figure is continuing to grow. Um, is there any reason that that can't be extended into other markets as well? Yeah, I, I can't 
speak for the for the Middle East. I, I mean, we, we've certainly been making many proposals to the industry, to, to the Australian government, that stunning before slaughter BA requirement of the live export trade. And and it is good to see stunning rates in Indonesia, for instance, uh, uh, go go upwards significantly. However, you know, when we're talking about percentages here, um, you know, 5-10% of the live export trade into Indonesia is still thousands upon thousands of cattle that are being slaughtered without prior stunning. And and that really, I mean, if you've, if you've seen cattle slaughtered without stunning, it's a horrific experience for the animal, of course. So we're still talking about thousands of animals that are literally, you know, having their necks cut open while they're still fully conscious um, and experiencing all the pain and distress associated with that. So we really need to get to 100% stunning. And in the Middle East, I don't think that's that's a a sort of a feasible objective. Uh, They've made no progress really on stunning for the million plus sheep that we're sending into the Middle Eastern market. So there's major question marks over whether or not there could ever be a 100% stunning outcome in in the Middle East. And and that, I mean, I'm sure globally, the $19 billion worth of business that's done globally, uh, nothing like 95% or even 20% of those animals um, are stunned. Yeah, I, I don't know about the stunning rates for the rest of the global uh, live export trade. I, I simply don't know. But again, I would re- reiterate the fact that we, we can't base our standards on what you know Brazil or or what uh, Romania may or may not do and require with, with respect to the animals they're sending overseas. So we don't do that in relation to our domestic animal welfare laws. So we shouldn't be doing it in relation to our live animal export laws either. So if we talk about Indonesian trade and particularly out of the Northern Territory, the recent abattoir that was opened up there by Australian uh, agricultural company has now been mothballed and closed down because it just, it wasn't viable. So those farmers in the Northern Territory really only have two choices about what to do with their animals. They either go on the live animal export or they pay $600-odd a head to ship them down to southern markets, which is, as you said, about... Um, live sheep is, isn't viable for them either. So that whole business in the Northern Territory almost survives based on live cattle exports to Indonesia. Now, that totaled, I think, last year about $1.3 billion in terms of general contribution to Australia. Is it not even more critical that we hang on, hang on to that business, both from the point of view of what their customers want and also from the point of view of what options the farmers have available for that vast grazing operation that is the Northern Territory. Yeah, Chris, you're certainly correct in in relation to the uh, additional logistical issues uh, for the live cattle trade in the top end of Australia. Uh, Obviously, when you're talking about uh, alternatives to live export up in the top end, um, they're not as viable as the alternatives to the live sheep trade, where you do have abattoirs in all of the areas that uh, we export sheep from. And it is unfortunate to see that the the, uh, abattoir south of Darwin looks like it may be closing, although... Um, uh, I, I don't believe they're completely shutting it down, but they've certainly. I think they're mothballing it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so they're, they're still, you know, keeping the facility there um, in case there is going to be uh, a further further business for them. But uh, yeah, in order to transition away from live cattle exports, you would require 
um, uh, further processing facilities in the top end of Australia. So, so there's certainly further challenges there. Um, but, there also, but I mean, the other issue, Jed, sorry to interrupt, the other issue there is that the cattle that they produce up there, which are largely these Bos Indicus Brahmin type cattle, um, are not don't generally provide the style of meat that is popular sold in Australia, in the south of Australia, where we're very much being weaned onto this uh, very tender, uh, marbled, British bred type cattle, or, or the worst, crossbred cattle with Brahmin in it. So the animals that are produced up there, and the reason they do that is because they are much better adapted to the northern, very arid climates. They've got more sweat glands, they've got dark skin, um, and they'll just keep on producing in times when British breed type cattle, like Herefords and Angus and so on, that, that we normally have down here, will go and just sit underneath a tree. So the outlet for those animals, even if there is an abattoir up there, um, you know, it still has to go overseas. So you're still based on, you know, will the Indonesians be happy to buy finished cattle as meat or will the government continue want to support their feedlots and to then slaughter the animals up there, not to mention the wet meat markets? Yeah, you're right. So, so you'd certainly be looking at exporting that that product um, uh, if you're if you're talking about the slaughter of uh, the Brahmin cattle breed, um, and likewise with the with the sheep that are currently being sent over live, uh, slaughtering those animals domestically, you would be looking at exporting that mutton and and that lamb because uh, there, there isn't a great domestic market for for that product. But uh, but again, I mean, and that's what the Australian Agriculture Company abattoir uh, was uh, approved to do, which was to, to export that meat and that was their, their primary business was, was exporting. Um, so we'd certainly be, be looking at that if we were uh, looking at uh, further abattoirs in the top end, they would be primarily uh, directed towards beef exports. So um, Jed, just in summary then, just uh, talking about ruminants, cattle and sheep, would the RSPCA's view be, I mean, your website I think states that they've encouraged people to start writing to members of parliament to effectively stop the whole live animal trade based on cattle and sheep. Um, is that a, an, an unchangeable position or is that a position uh, that may change as the world adopts better standards and as we find solutions, maybe even different designs of ships or whatever we need to do to make a reasonable progress in, in being able to get these sheep comfortably to their final markets? Yeah, Chris, it's it's never an unchangeable position, and that's uh, you know the RSPCA again as an animal welfare organisation, we're we're not opposed to uh, you know, using animals for for our ends and using them in a commercial way, uh, so long as it meets acceptable welfare standards. But uh, when it comes to live animal exports, again, uh, there are some fundamental conflicts between the the very sort of business model of live exports, particularly when you're talking about live sheep to the Middle East during uh, their northern summer, and and those acceptable welfare standards um, and uh, in, in terms of the, the risks involved, both from the, the voyage, uh, the transportation and the in-market treatment, I really can't see how all of those risks can be avoided or at least reduced to an acceptable level. So look, it's never unchangeable, but, but I think it's probably unlikely that we'll ever see a live animal export trade that can be done in a way that meets those acceptable basic animal welfare standards. Can we talk now about monogastrics, chickens and pigs, and let's talk about chickens first up. Um, 
there's been a lot of progress made in Australia, and of course this doesn't have anything to do with exports, but a lot of progress made in Australia on layer chickens, making sure that they're housed throughout their laying life uh, in conditions that are more uh, conciliatory, if you like, towards their welfare. Now getting rid of cages, starting to have barn laid uh, chickens in predominance, um, and also even going to the free-range situation. Or we'll talk about that more in a minute. But um, w- w- are you comfortable with the progress that's been made in that area? Yeah, look, it is great to see that um, the Australian consumers are, are more concerned about the welfare of chickens and, and the eggs they're buying. They're, they're wanting to, to ensure that the hens actually have a life that's worth living, that the hens are actually able to you know, express innate behaviours, they're able to scratch in the dirt, dust bathe, flap their wings, do all the things that hens like to do. Uh, and we have seen a steady increase in the market share for free-range eggs and, and other non-caged eggs like your, your barn and aviary eggs as well. Um, it is unfortunate, though, that we still have quite a significant proportion of the egg market um, still coming from the, the barren cage system, the battery cage system, where hens have less than an A4-sized sheet of paper in floor space on which to live for their entire lives in a, in a barren cage, and it really uh, doesn't allow them any ability to um, express any innate behaviours or even to extend their limbs. I mean, they can't even flap their wings in, in these cages. They're that small. So it is positive to see the consumer awareness growing, but uh, what we would like to see is for, for government finally to draw a line in the sand and say, Okay, we acknowledge the scientific evidence that uh, there is no possible way to meet the welfare needs of a hen inside a barren cage system. and to... Even with a bigger cage? Well, uh, th- that's a different story in relation to the enriched cages, which um, have, have started in, uh, in Europe. There's a, a market for putting in perches, nest boxes, scratch pads and so forth, and, and more space inside a cage environment. That certainly has improved animal welfare outcomes. Um, uh, however, you know, there, there, we, we do need to caution about moving in that direction because the consumer just sees that a cage is a cage. So uh, the consumer sees that, you know, a bigger cage is not necessarily a great alternative to, to the barren cage. So um, while there certainly are animal welfare improvements in an enriched cage system, um, yeah, we, we've also got to take into account what the consumer is is considering and how they perceive that um, that sort of production system as well. Can we talk a bit about free-range chickens? Now, my, my, my wife and my daughter, you know, are always on at me when we're in the supermarket to spend an extra $3 a dozen and buy um, free-range eggs. But my experience as an agricultural scientist and having visited many, many layer farms is that even where they have those little doors in the side of the barns, which are open for six or eight hours a day, only a very small percentage of the chickens actually bother to go outside and and go outside. And even if there's laying pens outside, they don't go out because they're comfortable in the warmth and their social environment with the other chooks. I'm not talking about cages here. I'm talking about, you know, barns with sawdust floors and they've got laying pens in the middle. They've got their food and water. I'm just wondering how much of this perception about them wanting to be outside is a human-based perception of saying, if I was a chook, I'd love to be out there or whether realistically we've measured with cortisol levels and all the other indicators of stress that the animals are much happier when they're outside than when they're in the warmth and and, uh, social environment of of a well-built barn. 
Yeah, look, it's a really interesting question. And of course, we've we've just been through this uh, very big debate in Australia about what, what is the definition of, of a free-range egg and a free-range production facility. And, and you're right, uh, in, in the past, we've had uh, certainly some controversial uh, issues to do with free-range production systems that have been identified as not, not actually being free-range. That is that the majority of the hens haven't actually been accessing the range at all. And, and sometimes that will come down to the sort of the infrastructure of the, of the barn and its layout. Uh, if you've got a couple of potholes down one end of the barn and it's a, a very large barn, the hens at the other side of the barn may not even know that those potholes actually are there. And then you also look at the quality of the range as well. Hens aren't, you know, stupid. They're, they're very conscious of, of uh, predators, for instance. So if the if the range is just a barren uh, sort of dirt floor and there's no overhead coverage, they can be uh, reluctant to go outside because there isn't uh, that protection from above. So it comes down to a lot of different factors, um, including, you know, the quality of the range, the size of the pop holes, um, the, the fact that the hens have easy access to those potholes. And you'll find uh, in those free range facilities where the outdoor range is actually attractive to the hens uh, and there's easy access to that range, you'll find that the vast majority of the hens do use that range every single day. So it really comes down to a, a lot of different factors. But uh, we now have a national information standard around what the definition of free range is and it goes into some of those sort of uh, those details. So we're, we're, in terms of um, the amount of area that we're talking about now to be classified as free range, uh, my understanding, I think it was 10,000 chickens per hectare. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Yep. So 10,000 chickens per hectare, is that still viable in your view at the current pricing for free range eggs? Oh, certainly, yes. So, um, I, I mean, you know, if you go to Coles and Woolies and you look at the uh, the free range eggs there, you're only talking about um, you know eighty cents to to a dollar twenty increase in in price. So it's certainly commercially viable, and uh, we do see that uh, you know free range is really uh, taking over the egg market, where consumers have the ability to distinguish between a a cage egg and a free range or non cage egg. Unfortunately, a lot of the, the cage eggs still go into the processed food market and also to uh, food service, so your cafes and things. So, And, and at that point, uh, consumers don't really have that uh, ability to distinguish between a cage egg and a free-range egg because it's it's just an, ing an ingredient in the product. Um, so uh, that that's why, again, we're calling upon state governments to agree nationally to a national phase-out of the uh, of the cage system. I mean, I don't think anyone would doubt that provenance is becoming a massive part of nearly every food. Even the cotton industry is now trying to identify their cotton. So in a T-shirt, you can tell it came from Australia and didn't come from some other country. So I'm sure that restaurants will start to use that provenance as part of their their selling campaign, if you like, for their food in restaurants. Yeah, absolutely, and and many of them are uh, at the moment. Uh, we've got a number of you know major major food retailers who have made their position on on eggs very clear that they don't uh, purchase cage eggs. You know, McDonald's, uh, the grilled burger chain. There's there's a number of others that have made very public commitments uh, to to not sourcing uh, caged eggs. So it's certainly becoming. A, a, a greater factor in their uh, supply and purchasing policies as well. And Jed, finally, as far as pigs is concerned, um, we've also made a lot of progress in the pig industry, particularly with 
sows. Now, there's always been the debate between the need to have the sow in comfort but also not increase piglet mortality because they, you know, more likely to get laid on or killed, you know, in a bigger pen where sows got more room to move around. Are you comfortable with the compromise that's been achieved in the standards for farrowing sheds now in the pig industry? Yeah, look, the, the pig industry is a different story. So we're, we've we've had, um, if I can describe it this way, a, a much more proactive industry approach. So the, the pig industry agreed voluntarily to phase out the use of intensive sow stalls. So that, that's sort of a, a stall where the sows are put into uh, during gestation where it's really not much bigger than the sow's actual physical body. So they can't turn around. Um, there's no sort of environmental stimulation whatsoever. But uh, a number of years ago, the pig industry agreed to a voluntary phase out of those sow stalls and they've made significant progress on that path. You know, there's a percentage of the industry that is still using them. Um, but what is what is really good to see is that the, the representative body of Australian pig producers is now calling upon our national standards uh, for the production of pigs to incorporate a mandatory phase out of sow stalls in those standards and we're currently in the process of revising those national standards as we speak. So I, I think we will see a mandatory requirement not to use sow stalls in the very near future and that's a very positive thing to see. Um, I would declare an interest here in that I've been on the advisory board of a, of a large piggery for many years and I agree with you they are very proactive about wanting to do the right thing in terms of sow stalls. Of course, however, it still comes down to the cost of the changes. And when you look at how many sows you can fit in a farrowing shed now, it's so much less. And yet the pork prices dropped by probably um, 25% over the last 18 months. So it's very hard to bring those changes in at the same time when people are not paying any extra or in fact paying 25% less for their pork. Yeah, I mean... But the vast majority of the industry has already made the change and, and this the, these changes um, for, for the majority of the industry came in quite a number of years ago. So before the, the current, um, I understand there are current price pressures uh, around the industry at the moment, but I don't think that's related to the phase out of sow stalls. Um, now, the, the farrowing crates, as, as you know, is a, is a different thing. That's uh, where, the, where the, the sow is actually nursing her, her piglets and uh, they're put into another crate type system to try and prevent the sow from laying on them. Uh, laying on the piglets, as you say, and uh, we're aware that there are some quite innovative designs coming out, uh, uh, which which still allow the sow to actually turn around and to, to move while still protecting the piglets. So it's good to see that there are some sort of technological innovations coming out within the industry um, that are going to uh, improve animal welfare and uh, and also improve uh, the productivity of the industry. So um, that again is a good news story, despite the fact that you know I, I do acknowledge we have these current uh, price pressures as well, and the uh, price of pork has has plummeted recently. But uh, again, that's I, I don't think that's got anything to do with uh, these uh, these animal welfare reforms. So, Jed, thank you very much for coming on AgriMinders today. You certainly are an AgriMinder. Uh, I always would encourage the RSPCA to work closely, and I'm sure they would want to do this, with the graziers who are battling away in, a, in an industry which is fraught with risk and drought and everything else. Um, I think everybody in agriculture, and I include myself, always want to see animal welfare being a key tenant of everything we do because without a love for animals, you wouldn't be in the business. Uh, so I think that you've explained your position well. I really appreciate you coming and putting that on AgriMinders and I'm sure we're all much better informed about where we might be going in the future. 
Well, absolutely, Chris. I think there's a huge amount of common ground between uh, the RSPCA and the vast majority of producers out there. And uh, we do pride ourselves on working as closely as possible with Australian producers. And uh, and uh, and that's the way we'll, we'll continue to operate in the future. So thanks very much for having me on the program. So having heard the carefully considered views of two of our preeminent Australian agri-minds in this area, we all need to decide, has the RSPCA set the bar too high when it comes to their animal welfare demands? Or can the welfare needs of animals be fulfilled in a more pragmatic way by standards based on science rather than human perception, as suggested by Mick Keogh, and not risk Australia's competitiveness and economy? I'm an optimist, and I firmly believe that they can. We have come way too far in our accepted stands and diligence to chuck it all in and hand the animal trade over to countries where they don't even have the most basic humane principles of animal welfare or sensitivity. Further, we're leading the world in negotiating agreed global conventions that will hopefully provide these animal rights to all animals in every country. So we need to be very careful not to drop the ball and let our sphere of influence and our standards of animal welfare be lost, either due to the imposition of unrealistic urban-based perceptions of animal needs, or indeed by the cost of regulation based on actual proven scientific fact. Now we've only just touched the surface of animal issues affecting our agricultural future, so we'll explore these more fully in future episodes. Join me next time on AgriMinders. Special thanks to the AgriMinds Think Tank Group. AgriMinders was presented by me, Chris Russell, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Executive producer extraordinaire was Jenny Goggin. Sound production by Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search AgriMinders on Apple Podcasts.